And I'm going to ask you to turn to your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And I'll be reading verses 7 through 23. Luke 22, verses 7 through 23. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. They said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters, and you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on, until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold... The hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And let's look to the Lord now in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have brought us to this place today. We thank you for that which you have provided for us in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves or dependent upon ourselves to figure things out or to understand in and of ourselves. For you have given us your Spirit. So we ask that you would be pleased by your Spirit to open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your Word that we may behold the beauty of the sacrifice that you have provided to save us from our sins and that we might rejoice therein. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Well, it's a privilege to be with you. And there's a couple of things I think I need to mention as we start out. First of all, this will not be an attempt to give a full exposition of the passages we previously read. If we did, 
uh, we'd probably have to be calling in pizza a couple of times. Uh, Pastor Brian would do a lot better job of that, I'm sure, than I would have. And uh, he'll get around to that a couple of years from now. So just hang with us. Secondly, it's good to be reminded that as Christ was here with His apostles, there was not a one of them that yet understood what the cross was about. Even though He had tried to speak to them and spoke to them quite bluntly a few times, they did not yet understand what was getting ready to happen, even in the next 24 hours. And so there's a number of things that I'd like to pull out of uh, this passage. And you'll see how the passage from Exodus and this passage from Luke fits together. Because something that the Lord impressed me with is as I read this verse 15, it says, And He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So I thought it would be good to look at the occasion that this is taking place, the significance or facts conveyed through types or shadows as revealed through the Old Testament Scriptures, and that we would see that truly Christ is the fulfillment. So first of all, we're going to look at the occasion. Now, if I knew that I was speaking to a crowd of Jewish people who had grown up in the Jewish tradition, I would probably start with Moses here and go forward. But realizing that we have a mixed crowd in relation to ages and understanding, I'm going to go backwards. The song comes to mind, let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. And yes, I do want to go back that that far. I would not do this in every single message I would ever preach. But as we understand, the Bible opens with the words, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, you know what we tend to do in our Bible reading, and I'm just as guilty as anyone else, we tend to get into this habit of if we've been with the Lord any length of time, we get in this habit of having goals of which we'll read. We've set aside time. We've set aside passages. And and I trust maybe that's become a habit in some of your lives is that you desire to read the Scripture from cover to cover year by year. And if it's not read it from cover to cover year by year, at least set a goal to read the Bible from cover to cover. Because one day... Every single one of us will give an account for the life that we lived here on earth, and that count will be measured in relation to Scripture. So it's a good thing to know what it says. And since he starts out with the words, in the beginning, God, what we ought to understand is that God is the center of everything you're going to see.
we also tend to get stuck in our own little worlds and we think more about who we are and what our significance is and what it is that we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to uh, get through this life, so to speak. When the reality is, if God is not at the center of your life, then you will really never ever know your purposes until it's too late. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As you go through the first uh, three chapters of Genesis there, you will find that everything that you can see and even the things that you cannot see were created in those days. On the sixth day, He created man. He said, let us... Now, when He said, let us, of whom was He speaking? Obviously, there was a conversation going on there between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And He said, let us make man in our own image. And the purpose for which He created everything, including mankind, was that He might reflect... His glory throughout all creation. So that when He created man, He created mankind to be the Lord over creation under God. So He created man from the dust of the ground, breathed into His nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. God saw that everything He made was good. But when you read where He created man, He said it was not good that man should be alone. And so He made him a helpmeet. You remember, He put him into a deep sleep. He took a rib from His side, not out of His head, not out of His feet. Took a rib from His side, made him a helpmeet. But then Satan came along. After God had given Adam instruction, he said, You may eat of all the trees of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. Now, in the natural mind, all this thing sounds too simple, doesn't it? You would think... Because sometimes we try to put ourselves in that place. You would think if God created a perfect world and everything in it was perfect. And he took a man and made him perfect and put him in that perfect world. Then man would thrive throughout all eternity in that perfect world as a perfect man. Little did we comprehend the devastation of one sin. Satan, of course, appeared to Eve, said, has God said, first thing he wanted to do was get her to doubt what God had said, you shall not eat of the fruit. She said, we shall not eat of it, neither should we touch it, lest we die. And then he said, God knows that when you eat that, you're not going to die. In fact, you're going to be like God. And in our fallen nature, that is the wicked venom of Satan itself that thrives in our lives is the desire to be 
like God, which means we would desire to dethrone God and put ourselves in his place. And you see that throughout the course of history. You see some of the very degradation of that in the first two children. You remember Cain and Abel? Cain brought of the fruit of the ground. Abel brought a blood sacrifice. The sacrifice of Abel pleased God and Cain was jealous of him. And you had the first murder in the first two children brought in this world. But God had told them to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So they started having children. And their children had children. And their children's children had children. And each one of them carried this wickedness within them. Until it got to the point that God said the thoughts and intents of men were only continually evil. I know sometimes we watch the news. And I'm not downplaying some of the things going on in the rest of the world. For it is horrid. The atrocities taking place in Iraq, Iran, and Israel. Different places around the world. The problems we have with our own government here in America. And with so many other things. And yet God looked upon the children of men and saw that the thoughts and intents of their hearts were only continually evil and it grieved Him that He had made man. And He determined He was going to wipe out all of mankind. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And it wasn't like Noah went out looking through the garden and said, Oh, there's favor. There's grace. No, what we see throughout creation is that God chose to reveal Himself to mankind. Because when we think about grace, sometimes we have this thought that grace is this just kind of mystical stuff that comes from God into our lives. And as one person has said, grace is the goodness and favor of God based upon the merit of Christ. And yes, that would be true. Or as the acrostic that some people use, God's riches at Christ's expense. But grace is likewise the impartment of God Himself into our lives through the merit of Christ. Noah found grace, favor in the eyes of the Lord, and God commissioned him to build the ark. 120 years he spent building the ark, preaching righteousness through that time. And out of all the people in all the world at that time, there were eight people who boarded that ship. Noah, Japheth, Ham, and Shem, his three sons, and their wives. So that when the floods came and destroyed the world, eight people survived. 
And yet, when the flood subsided, God told them to be fruitful and multiplied, and so they began having children, and their children had children, and children and more grandchildren. Until they got to a place where they were all of one language and one speech, and they decided they were going to settle in the place of Shinar. And they said, let us make a name for ourselves. There we have, goes back to the original sin once again. And God said, that's not good. So he confounded their language. They couldn't understand what each of them was saying, so they spread out all over the world. Mankind had not changed. Down through the lineage of Shem, you can follow that out through the book of Genesis, you find the Lord spoke to Abram. He said, I want you to get out of your, out of your country, away from your kindred, and go to the land that I'll show you. Now he didn't see it with his physical eyes, but he was following, he was listening to the word of God and following what God had said so that he would go to the place that God would show him. Of course, Abram was 90 years old when God told him he would have a son, Sarah, somewhere around there. I don't remember their ages, didn't write it down. But they were, I think he was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old when they had a son. Now, logically thinking, that was impossible. And if you're thinking that, you would be right. But that which is impossible with man is possible, not only possible, but dependable with God. So Abram, his name was changed to Abraham. God gave him a promise. He said, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed through your seed. So Abram had a child. His name was Isaac. Isaac had two children, Esau and Jacob. God chose Jacob. Now, if you'd have followed earlier in their life, you would have probably by nature picked Esau as the better of the two. Jacob was a scoundrel. And yet, God doesn't choose like we would choose. Because if we understood who we are, we would often be caught up in amazement that he would choose any one of us. Jacob and Esau, of course, Jacob was renamed Israel. Israel had 12 sons. Of the 12 sons, 11 of them was jealous of the younger one, Joseph. They took him, they sold him into uh, slavery. 
And you read as the account of Joseph, Joseph that all the way through the process that God was taking him through, though his brothers would have killed him, they kept, he, God kept him from that. They sold him into slavery. And then as a slave, he rose in his significance. And then he got accused of things that he never did and got thrown into prison. And yet, every step of the way, you see it said, and God was with him. Now you might think, well, if it was me, I wouldn't see how it was that God was with me. Because we tend to think of the blessings of God in an outward way. But we find that Joseph was sent there to prepare a provision for his family. And God gave Pharaoh over Egypt a dream. And Joseph interpreted the dream. And God used that to take Pharaoh to raise Joseph up second in position over the mightiest nation in the world at the time. And through that... God used him to bring his family into Egypt to provide for them. Now when the family came into Egypt, by the time they got there, there was a total of about 70 people. But over the course of time, the Bible says there rose up a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, And the children of Israel were brought into subjection as slaves. And they were slaves for 430 years. And God heard the cry of those people. And in fact, they were multiplying so quickly that the Pharaoh determined, I'm going to kill all the male children that are raised up through these Hebrews unless they get so big and so powerful, they overcome us. But God saw fit to protect a little baby named Moses. Not only did God protect him, he raised him up in the house of Pharaoh, gave him the best education, equipped him. I remember someone once said, it took him 40 years to become somebody, and then the next 40 years to become nobody. And once he became nobody, then God was able to use him. Went on the backside of the desert, because he had killed a man, and everybody around there knew it went on the backside of the desert and God spoke to him and he said, I want you now to go back to Egypt and you tell Pharaoh to let my people go. He said, well, how will I know that he'll let them go? He said, well, I'm going to use you. You're going to call down these plagues upon Egypt. I'm going to send them and you're going to go to Pharaoh and he's still not going to want to let them go. And I'm telling you that up front. But the tenth plague, I'm going to bring the death of the firstborn of all the land. Now through the first nine plagues, the children of Israel were protected so that those plagues were imposed upon all of Egypt while the children of Israel 
were protected. But on the tenth plague, he said, God said, I'm, the Lord said, I'm going to come through the land of Egypt and I'm going to take out the firstborn of everyone and everything except. And that's where you see the detailed instruction from Exodus chapter 12. And the institution of the the memorial to be kept throughout their generations. By this time, there was approximately 2 million Jews in the land of Egypt. And it is estimated that it took nearly 150,000 lambs. I'm going to repeat that because a part of what we need to comprehend is this basis to understand the value of the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And it is estimated that at this point there were some 150,000 lambs. And we understand that as God gave Moses these commands and Moses in turn gave it to the people, God had already been preparing them for this place and this time because he said, I want you to take a lamb a year old. That means they had to have an awful lot of sheep there. And it is to be a male. It is to be without blemish. I want you to take the lamb, slay that lamb, take the blood, put it over the the doorposts, on the doorposts and at the top. And that night, I want you to roast that lamb. Don't eat it raw. Don't boil it. And I want you to eat every every part of it. And if there's anything left, burn it. And when I come to the land of Egypt... Anywhere I see the blood, I will pass over you. And there was a cry that went out all over Egypt that night like no cry that had ever gone out. As the death of the firstborn took place throughout that land. We fast forward some 1,500 years to the time of Christ. There obviously had been a change in the procedure of how this Passover, which was to be passed down, this tradition, this memorial, was to be passed down throughout all generations. Well, they were no longer in the land of Egypt, as it were. So they no longer had to put the blood over the, the door, over the top of the door and on the sides. But as all of the sacrifices that were given, the blood was to be taken and splashed on the altar in the tent of meeting. Or at this time, in the tabernacle. And the requirement was that all of the Jewish people within 15 mile radius of Jerusalem were required to participate in this Passover sacrifice. So by this time, there's some 3 million Jews within a 15 mile radius of Jerusalem. And it would have required perhaps 250,000 lambs. And the blood was to be sprinkled 
at the base of the altar in the temple. So you can picture, you know, we, we read this story of what's taking place and we think, well, they just went down. Jesus said, you'll find a man with a bottle of water, follow him and prepare the Passover. But what's happening is of great, great, great consequence here. All around them, people are preparing for this moment, for this memorial. And as the lambs are slain, there's a priest there with a bowl of silver or gold to capture some of the blood. And they've got an assembly line, as it were. Some of you may be old enough to remember when they used to put out fires on the farms. They had a a bucket thing going there. And they would send an empty one toward the fire hydrant and a full one toward the house. And so this was happening all over around Jerusalem as the blood was being taken, passed through three divisions of priests until it was sprinkled on the altar. That's the occasion we find ourselves in here. He reclined at the table and the apostles with them, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That was the occasion. And now the significance or the facts conveyed through the types or shadows Some people would call it foreshadows. And sometimes I I think about things that, terms that are used in the scripture, and we understand what a shadow is in our circumstance. If we had the opportunity to look outside, you can see shadows on the ground. Now, if you didn't know what was out there, you would know there were shadows, but you might not know particularly what the shadows represented. And you certainly, if all you had was a shadow to go by, you wouldn't know the details. And that is what they were given in their time during the Exodus because what Christ has accomplished is an Exodus of His people out of this present evil world. If your hope is that somebody down here is going to figure out how to make everything right, you're wrong. God does give seasons and times where He raises up men for the betterment of mankind in a temporal way. But this earth is on a crash course toward hell. The types or shadows that are conveyed when we look back to the time of the Passover, there was the death of the firstborn. Can you imagine if that happened to everyone in this room today? What you would be feeling if it happened all at one time? And yet, through the sacrifice of Christ, we see the death of the natural man 
For the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. Unless there has been a death that has taken place in our own life, then we will not know the things of God because they're only revealed from God through Christ by the Spirit that we might see the light of His glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul was able to say, and we who have had that understanding given to us by the Spirit, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me for the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And if I did not have that confidence that He had done it, I'd want to throw my hands up and quit. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight, trusting in the merit of Christ alone. There was the death of the firstborn, and we see that there was a deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. In Christ, we have the deliverance from the bondage of sin. Romans 6, 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We have been set free. And one thing, if you are in Christ and you are still a babe in Christ, one thing the devil will come back at you again and again and again and again is try to convince you that he's not yet set you free from sin. I have a quote from one of my former pastors who gives, I think, one of the best definitions of what repentance is. In fact, that's what Jesus said. That's what the disciples said was repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is not the absence of struggle, but the absence of settled defiance against the Lordship of Christ. Repentance involves a spirit-fueled change of desires. And if we have a spirit-fueled change of desires, we know we didn't get it on our own. We are delivered. You've heard it again and again. We're delivered from the penalty of sin definitively. I will never have to bear the penalty of sin because Christ bore the penalty for me. He stood in my place. He who knew no sin became sin. He took upon Himself my sin and He suffered the wrath of God in my place that I might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And that's the way God the Father looks at us now. It's definitively finished, just as Christ said from the cross. But we are likewise being saved from the power of sin. We still feel the tug within us 
That's why we can read as it is, I believe it's in James, it says there's... No, that's not the one. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And one day, and this ought to be enough to make a Baptist want to shout and run around the room. We, are, we will be saved from the presence of sin itself. I can't hardly comprehend that. Because we are so much full of it. But there's also the deliverance from the rule of Pharaoh that took place. We had the deliverance from the rule of Satan. And we might, in our natural mind, think, we mean the rule of Satan. He ain't got nothing to do with me. And I know that's not good English, but it is correct theology. This is what the apostle said in Ephesians. And this is what we, we may not fully comprehend this when we're first brought to birth in Christ, but this is part of what we come to understand and a part of how we appreciate our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ more and more and more and more. It says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You've read the story of the Pied Piper? That's who he is. And we just follow along by nature unless God reveals the realities of both our sin, ourself, and Satan, and how He has delivered us in Christ. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Folks, if you're in Christ, you're already there. You're already there. But not yet. And we see that they were trusting in deliverance through faith in the blood of the lambs. We find our deliverance through faith in the blood of the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. The world can no longer have me. He can. The world can no longer have you. We now belong to our King. Because He indeed is the fulfillment of the Passover. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
I have another more passages we could look at, but I just make reference to Hebrews chapter 9. Verses 11 and 12, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So that as the blood, as they were celebrating that Passover, and we picture that blood coming in from all around the city being deposited at the base of the altar in the temple, that was a picture of the blood of Christ being placed in heaven itself as a propitiation for our sin. He offered up by the eternal Spirit... For our sin. And it was only necessary one time. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So what are some practical applications? One thing that maybe should be obvious, is that in the past when they partook of the Passover, it was not the... Partaking of the Passover feast did not secure eternal salvation for those that came out of Egypt. We find that as they came out of Egypt, went through the Red Sea into the wilderness, the Bible says, with many of them... God was not well pleased and they died in the wilderness and never made it to the promised land. And every one of them had partaken of the Passover. Neither does partaking of the Lord's table. It does not in any way secure salvation. Because it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He has saved us. So any teaching that conveys the idea that unless you partake of the Lord's table, you're going to go to hell, is false. As a works to acquire it. But it is an outward physical act of obedience to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a proclamation of an inward spiritual reality. As He said to those who were with Him, He likewise says through them to us in our day, do this in remembrance of Me. 
just a simple act of obedience. If we love Him, we are to keep His commandments. Now folks, we're not going to keep a whole lot of them perfectly. In fact, I don't know that we can keep any of them perfectly. But God is looking not at the outward appearance, He's looking at the heart. And He knows the desire that He has placed within us is to please Him in all that we do. Do this in remembrance of me. It is the recognition that it is the action of God and Christ that brought about our salvation. Do this in remembrance of me. It is not that I do anything to attain salvation. It's that He did it for me through His broken body and the blood that was shed. Through His body, which was broken for us, we are made members of His body, His bride, awaiting the day of consummation. I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We are waiting for the full fulfillment. We are awaiting for His return when He brings this to pass. Through His blood we have received the forgiveness of sins. We are justified by faith. We have peace with God. It is also, it is an act of worship. It is an act of worship toward God in the remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ. And it is likewise a celebration of the fact, of the fact We need to get that stuck in our head. It is a fact that Jesus is coming again. And when He comes again, He will absolutely change everything. Revelation chapter 19, John was given a vision of heaven. And he said, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Partaking of the Lord's table is not only a command given by Christ to the church until he comes, it is likewise a privilege. On an individual basis, we are admonished that if we would draw close to God, He will draw close to us. How much more true as we gather together as a body of believers to proclaim our Lord's death until He comes? On that day when you had born 
Our sins amidst those shouts of scorn, the wrath of God came crashing down upon you. And yet in anguish bearing pain, you looked beyond that cross of shame, for judgment brought forth peace there. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Bless Lord Jesus as we feast upon the bread both great and least, remembering all you are and honor do you. For what we need you did provide, the righteousness in which we hide to all we are is like you. Hallelujah. Your blood now cleanses every stain. Your spirit sent brings every gain to grow in grace and humbly bow before you. Receiving all through what you teach, the words you gave until we reach that place prepared to see you. Hallelujah. On that day we're glorified with every nation, tongue, and tribe. Our praise perfected will bring honor through you unto the Father of the host, empowered by the Holy Ghost, eternal for all time then. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when you look upon us, you look upon us through the perfect sacrifice of your Son. And we would ask that if there be any here today that do not know you, that you would help them to comprehend the fact that you have placed them here in time to glorify you. And that if they would call upon you, trusting in the merit of Christ alone, if they would turn from their sin and understanding that without your assistance they are absolutely hopeless hopeless and even doing that cause them to cry out in mercy cause them to, to have their eyes to behold the one who is our prize Jesus Christ and him crucified for it's in his name we pray Amen